1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, we recently were lucky enough to be part of New York Comic Con Presents, which uh, we have talked about before, but is the parallel evening programming for New York Comic Con.
0: So today we are sharing the audio of that recording, which was made at Hudson Mercantile. It is all about the man who is often credited as being the creator of the first comic book in the Western world. And we are definitely going to get into all the qualifiers around that uh, in the course of the show. So uh, it is a full episode. So
1: let's hop right in and hear it.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
1: Uh, Tracy, humans have always communicated through pictures. Pretty much. Always, always. It goes back literally to the earliest known cave paintings. And we have come to be, as a species, very acquainted with the idea of pictures in a series that tell a
0: story. Yeah. Sorry. I'm... I know you were so I entranced know. by my voice. I was. So you Just <laughs> went to a special place. <laughs> I did. So, but that that concept—not just of pictures, but of pictures one after another telling a story—like that started somewhere. And one of the people that's often lauded as the father of the modern comic book, which uses that pattern. Uh, is Rudolf Topfer, but before we talk about
1: him, we actually have to talk about um, the fact that that title as father of the modern comic book, comes with some pretty serious qualifiers first i 'm going to ask Tracy to mention one that came up while we were talking
0: today that I did not include in this outline. Oh, sure, the Bayou Tapestry. That right. tells a story with a lot of pictures in a particular order. It's from a very long time ago. And, the, I mean, there's all kinds of pottery that's got stories written on it in pictures. Yeah.
1: And as I mentioned earlier, even previous podcast subject, William Hogarth, sometimes actually gets a nod as the creator of sequential art, at least in the Western world, uh, because of his print series that he did, like A Rake's Progress. Those are the ones on the boots. Um, and Marriage a la Mode. But while those... Featured stories that did play out over a series of successive images They were each on a full-size print So it wasn't like a thing you could just look at and get the whole story at once The viewer would have to work their way Like physically through a room where they were hung Or in a big huge folio style book where they would have to flip each page
0: Yeah, today you can scroll down correct collections of it on the internet With them much smaller, but at the time it was a big gallery situation so, Rudolf Tuffer actually cited Hogarth as an influence in this, his writing and his visual storytelling. He mentioned, in particular, the series called Industry and Idleness, which was published in 1747. And we didn't talk about that specific one in our previous episode about the life of Hogarth. Uh, but it's a series of 12 prints. I'm a little saddened by the topic. They were intended to give working children a sense... Not of how life might get better one day and maybe we would have child labor laws and stuff, but of how important hard work and mindfulness to duty are. (laughs) Uh, And that ignoring the importance of one's, of those things would invite a life of misfortune, so
1: keep on working, kids. It's good for you. <laughs> Super good for you. And it's actually no mistake that Topfer singled out that particular series, uh, because the two other Hogarth series that we mentioned, A Rake's Progress and a Marriage a la Mode, had actually both been created as a series of paintings before they were then turned into engravings for mass production. But industry and idleness was a little bit different in that it had been made with the intent of mass production from the start, presumably because so many working children really needed these lessons. Um, <laughs> and it was priced to market to a wide audience. So it was priced not to be great art, but to be something consumed by middle and lower classes. Uh, and as Topfer was not a painter, which we'll talk about why, and he did eventually position his own work in a similar way. I feel like I should qualify that and say he did some paintings, but um, that wasn't really his vocation. as we'll learn. But it made sense that he would choose industry and idleness, something that was purposely intended for wide-range consumption as the item of William Hogarth's work that he would write about.
0: Yeah, and of course, he's, he's not the only person in all of Western art history that had this sort of series of pictures. You could even say that the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel is a form of sequential art, because it's a series of pictures that are telling a story. But, I mean, that's obviously not a book, You don't turn pages on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, but there is a narrative that's being communicated in the artwork.
1: And narrative comical art in Asia has been traced as far back as scrolls attributed to a priest named Toba Sojo in the 11th century. And the Hokusai manga, which was first published in the early 1800s, are examples of sketches by Hokusai, which convey narrative in a similar way, but they're kind of grouped on a, on one thing together. They don't separate out with frames. Um, they had more of this free-form approach to conveying the story. So there weren't frames, as I said. There weren't captions. Uh, and we're going to talk about those kinds of concepts, though, in this episode. And they did, though, eventually
0: integrate both of those things into manga, of course. Some more modern examples that sometimes come up as the origin of sequential art and comics include the popular strip The Yellow Kid, which ran at the end of the 19th century in newspapers in the United States. Um, the Yellow Kid was influential particularly in the popularization of word balloons to convey dialogue. So, you know, comics have a whole visual language to them, with that being one part of that language. I'm just going to draw word balloons with my hand, apparently. Uh, and... Topfer's work though predated by the yellow kid by several decades and combined other comic elements that we would recognize today. Yeah, the the Yellow Kid was
1: also one of the first things that was actually used as a merchandising opportunity. There was, you could get all the Yellow Kid everything when it was popular. Uh, that's one of those things that I actually would love to do as another episode one day. Um, but making the case for giving top for his share of the credit in creating this genre, we're going to turn to the words of a prolific writer when it comes to discussing comics as a medium, and that is Scott McCloud. And in his book, Understanding Comics, he wrote, the father of the modern comic, in many ways is Rodolphe Topfer, whose light satiric picture stories starting in the mid-1800s employed cartooning and panel borders and featured the first independent combination of words and pictures seen in Europe.
0: And even the term sequential art didn't exist when Topper was alive. That phrase was actually coined by Will Eisner more than a century later in his 1985 publication, Comics and Sequential Art. So having established at this
1: point that there really isn't just one person that we can give all the credit to for the genesis of the comic book and acknowledging that we are definitely focusing on sequential art in the Western world— we're going to start in on the life of this one man who was unarguably a huge part of creating this genre that we all know today as comic books,
0: and thus, Comic-Con. <laughs> <laughs> why we're all here. Well, why some of us are here. Uh, so Topper was born on January 31st, 1799, in Geneva, Switzerland. His father was Wolfgang Adam. Adam. Adam is a normal word I can say. I mean, you can spruce it up. I'm not going to judge. Uh, His father was Wolfgang Adam Topper, and he was a German painter who had moved to Switzerland and then made that his home. The Met here in New York actually has some of his paintings in their collection, but they're not currently on display. You can see them on the Internet, though.
1: Yeah, the Met's website has everything. Uh, If I'm remembering correctly, it's like a painting and a sketch might be a painting and two pencil sketches, but you can see his dad's work. Uh, and Rodolphe was almost a phrase that I mentioned, and, and Tracy made a quizzical puppy face. He was almost uniquely completely Swiss. And the reason that I chose that phrasing is because he stayed in Geneva pretty much his entire life. He didn't even travel very much. He just loved being there. Um... He went to Paris briefly as a boy for school in the 1919-1920 school year, but that was really the only time he left Geneva for any length at all. Uh, he would occasionally make short excursion trips to hike in the Alps close to home, but that was it. He was so, a homebody. Yeah, he was not a big world traveler, not even a Europe traveler, even though it was all very close by.
0: He also had poor eyesight, and it was while he was away at school that it was recognized that this poor eyesight was a degenerative eye disease. So he had been interested in art and had wanted to do art from an early age and he thought his vision problems meant that he wouldn't be able to follow in his father's professional footsteps. So he turned his interests to literature, although he kept sketching. And so because his vision was really poor, he developed a very fast and casual way of drawing, which actually enabled him to capture moments, idea, and ideas really quickly in a visual form using I mean a very small number of strokes. Yeah, and we're gonna talk a little bit about why he ended up prizing that
1: simplicity in terms of his drawing style later on as he turned it into more of a profession. Uh, but Top First verse- schooling led him to a career in education. So he started teaching in 1822, and he taught in a number of boys' schools in Geneva over the course of the next couple of years.
0: Not long into his career as an educator, though, he struck out on his own, and he founded his own boarding school in 1824. He had married a woman named Anne Francois... I I wrote down how to say this... (laughs) He had married a woman named Anne-Francoise Moulinier in the previous year, and the two of them eventually had four children together. And even though Rodolphe was
1: invested in his teaching career, he never stopped crafting stories, either in writing or by sketches. And he would take these hiking trips in the summer with his students, these are his brief little sojourns into the Alps, uh, from his school, and then he would kind of... Make a diary of them in words and pictures with his own story embellishments. And these accounts were actually the beginning of the visual storytelling that would eventually lead to his sequential art.
0: And doing this art really filled a void in his life. He continued to develop visual stories basically as a hobby. It offered him a creative outlet that being a teacher and an administrator didn't really. Sometime in 1827, he started drawing images in sequence with captions to tell the stories. And he started sharing his work with other people, which at first was all he really intended to do, just kind of hand it around to his friends. He just wanted to amuse himself and his friends and his students in a creative way. And we're going to talk about a pretty major
1: figure who actually encouraged this educator to start publishing his picture stories and kind of create a new career for himself. But before we do that, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. Okay, uh back to Rudolf. So, a famous name in literature is in part to thank for Rudolf Topfer deciding that he should publish these amusing little sketch stories. And that is Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Uh, the two were acquaintances, and Topfer actually sent him some of his work at one point. Gerto was already quite old at this time. And he immensely enjoyed this way of representing narrative in this new style. And he is largely credited with encouraging Topfer to go to print with these comical stories. This
0: was risky for him to do, though. I mean, this was considered a pretty lowbrow form of entertainment. And because he was an educator associating himself with such a lowbrow thing could damage his career. And
1: unfortunately, we know he did go forward with it, but when Topfer's first example of Literature en Estampes, which translates roughly to graphic literature, was published in 1833, Goethe had already died of heart failure, so he didn't see his his encouraged accomplishment come to fruition. Uh, but that series that was published was Histoire de Monsieur Jabot, and it published the year after Goethe's death, but it had been created actually two years before that, in 1831. This will come up over and over that Topfer was publishing things that he had been
0: sitting on in some cases for more than a decade at a time. And the publication of Monsieur Jabot was also plagued with problems. Uh, Topfer's relationship with this printer had soured while they were working on it. There was a lot of bickering between the two of them about both money and damaged art. Yeah,
1: Topfer had ordered and paid for a full run of several hundred copies of this comic, but initially he only wanted it to go out to friends. But word soon circulated that a wide release into bookstores was coming, and Topfer blamed the printer for spilling the beans about this. The artist had held back the majority of copies for two reasons. First... He wanted to wait until his professorship was tenured so that even if his reputation suffered, his income was still going to be secure.
0: Uh, second, he wanted it to seem like his work was kind of rare before it went into a wider publication to try to drive up the price. And public knowledge that a release was on the way was going to ruin that effort to create a false scarcity as a marketing tactic. At the same time, though, Topper made ten times the cost of, ten times the cost of having the print run on, uh, that first run of Monsieur Jabot.
1: Yeah, like, this is one of those things I'm always reluctant to ever tell a comic book creator, because, because nobody just out of the gate makes ten times what they put into something. Um, but he just took off like a rocket right out of the gate. Uh, the character, Monsieur Jabot, is something of a social upstart and a climber, so he was already starting with his satire immediately. Uh, so Jabot put ...puts on airs to try to imitate the manners of a man in high society. But in the end, he just comes off as a buffoon. Uh, Jabot became really, really popular as a character... ...and even Topfer himself sort of loved him. So he actually makes appearances in other comic books by Topfer... ...as kind of like a, a cameo. So in a strange way, Jabot's buffoonery did in fact gain him entry into society.
0: Uh, and as Holly alluded to, before Monsieur Jabot's adventures were made public... Hopper had all kinds of other projects that were already in the works. He was a prolific creator, not just of these sketched-out stories, but also of more traditional fiction and essays. By 1830, his writing was regularly featured in the monthly journal... I'm going to just go ahead and start with the Frenchifying in the English words... Uh, His work was regularly featured in the monthly journal La Bibliothèque Universelle de Genève, and that is essentially Universal Library of Geneva.
1: Yes, so that was a couple years before he started printing his little comics. Um, But the series that he wrote for the journal, which was called Reflexions et Menus Propos d'une peinture genevoise, was a review of paintings in Geneva. It was essay work and critiques. And these writings were later republished in collected form across two volumes after Topfer's death.
0: In 1832, his story, La Bibliothèque de Mon Oncle, or My Uncle's Library, was published. That is a tale about young love and tragedy. The main character falls in love with a young woman who dies. It was, general, was generally well-received and was called charming by its critics. I'm, I chuckled because it's like the young woman dies, but it was very charming. <laughs> uh, Between his critical essays, his fiction, and these sketched-out stories, from that point on, he was pretty much continually publishing stuff. Yeah, that same
1: year, he also published another piece of fiction called Le Presbyter, and he became the professor of rhetoric at the Academy of Geneva, and it was actually tenure for that particular position that he was waiting to secure before that wide release of Monsieur Jabot.
0: In the late 1820s, he had been working on the art and the text for a series which would come to be known as Histoire de Monsieur Vaubois, and also Voyage et Aventures de Dr. Festus and Histoire de Mr. Cryptogam. But he didn't publish any of these for a number of years after he started working on them.
1: Yeah, he was just a busy bee all the time and had stuff always in the works. Uh, so Histoire de Monsieur Crapin was Topfer's next published album of sketch-based storytelling. And this was actually written, drawn, and published all in 1837. So it's kind of an outlier in his work because it was all done in the same year. And this particular comic satirizes education, which of course was something that was a big part of his life, through the story of Monsieur Clépin's hiring of one problematic tutor after another for his many children. Like, the character had a herd in the comic. It's just loads of children in every um, frame. And it was a critique against the really rigid systems of education that were being favored and like how people would get obsessed with one approach to educating children and just be really stuck in that rut Um, because Topfer himself disliked this sort of rigid approach to education because he thought it really just came with a lot of bureaucracy and was a pain in the butt.
0: Les Amours de Monsieur Vaubois, which was created in 1827, was also published in 1837, so 10 years later. And once again, the main character, whose name translates to Old Wood, is kind of a buffoon. And then the plot centers around a young woman that he falls in love with, although, much like uh, Topper's other work, it has a narrative that meanders into other topics.
1: Yeah. He really would, you know, kind of invented that. Meanwhile, back at the hall of justice kind of approach, like he would just kind of dart away from the story and tell some other backstory things periodically. Uh, but this entire story is really pretty dark humor. Uh, a lot of the jokes about Monsieur Bois' failed suicide or about his failed suicide attempts, uh, when he's separated from his love or he is imprisoned, both of which happen an awful lot in the course of the story. Uh, and at one point, Monsieur Vieuxbois actually thinks he is dead for a full two days. So he lies very still, and then he sits up very skinny. Um, <laughs> so he maybe doesn't have a full grasp of how, like, actual m- metabolic things happen. But um, there are also in the story a lot of monks who work very hard to keep these lovers apart. But ultimately, the story does end with the pair being happily married.
0: Yeah, if you had a really dark sense of humor today, then... That the jokes might be funny, yeah, but uh, maybe, maybe well, not. Otherwise,
1: we'll talk <laughs> some more about some jokes that just don't feel terribly hilarious these days. Yeah.
0: So by the end of the 1830s, uh, Topper's work had become more famous, and that fame had also become problematic. He had this market model of trying to maintain a scarcity of his work to drive up the price, but pirated versions were coming out, which were being sold all over Europe. So, due to a lack of international copyright law at the time, this was not illegal. To try to combat the problem, Tuffer released a new edition of the popular Histoire de Monsieur Vaubois with a lower price that matched the imposter's price of the counterfeit copies of his work, uh, and he continued to have problems with knockoffs, so that didn't really fix it.
1: Yeah, that pretty much persisted throughout his career. Uh, in 1840, Topfer published the fourth of seven comics he produced in his lifetime. This one titled Monsieur Pencil. Uh, and it was initially created in 1831. Again, that's nine years prior to publication. And it's uh, this really interesting tale. As many of his start small, and then they kind of spiral out of control, it begins with an artist that loses a sketch when the wind blows it away. But this runaway drawing catalyzes this series of crazier and crazier events that nearly leads to world war, uh, but that crisis is narrowly averted.
0: He was also continuing to publish other, more traditional work. A collection of Topfer's short stories was published in France in 1841. This collection was titled Nouvelle Genevoise or New Geneva. It's a, it was very well received critically, and it gave his fiction another a layer of credibility.
1: Uh, politically, things really shifted in Geneva in the early 1840s, and that actually impacted Topfer's work as well. Rudolf was very conservative, and when the radical party of leftist liberals were kind of elected into power, he used his voice as a writer to speak out for the conservative agenda. And his friends actually found him to be rather fanatical about this. Like, they kind of thought he had maybe gone a little too far. But he started publishing regularly in Le Courier de Genève, which was a conservative paper that he actually helped launch. Uh, it had a very short run because this was not popular opinion and they really couldn't get a foothold. And it only ran from 1842 to 1843.
0: So we're about to get to the part where finally Tupper's art comes to North America. And before we do that, we're going to take one more pause for a little sponsor break.
1: 1842, Topfer's work made its way across the Atlantic to become what is regarded as the first comic book published in the United States. And that title was The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck. Uh, that was the name that the 1837 publication Histoire de Monsieur Vieux Bois was uh, given when it got here. And that was considered the first comic book in Europe. Uh, but for the North American audience in English, Obadiah Oldbuck. Uh, and it was not offered as a solo title for purchase. It was actually a supplement to a newspaper.
0: I love the name Obadiah o- Oldbuck. It's pretty great. I apparently can't say it very well, but I, I love that. His next book, Voyage en Zigzag, which was published in 1843, was based largely on accounts he had written as a young teacher on hiking trips with his students. And there are some illustrations in this book, but it's really more like a novel with illustrations and not a comic book. Yeah, and most of
1: the illustrations are not in his sort of silly style. They're a little bit more formalized and like, here is a scenery that we came across.
0: I'm imagining it's like stardust.
1: Yeah, uh, that's not entirely off the mark. Um, you can actually find that on, online. Most of these are archived. They're at archive.org. Uh, some of his original stuff is a little tricky to read because the, um, the captions are not only in French, but he had very curly Q writing, so it's a little dicey to read, but you can find them online. Um, and in 1842, Topfer published Essay d'Autographie. Uh, so he was aware that what he was doing by pairing captions with framed story beats was unique. And he had gained a level of fame for it at this point. So he wrote about his style of crafting narrative in this book. And then he wrote another book about his work three years later called Essay de Physiognomonie, And that second book on his visual storytelling speaks a lot about creating character and identity through drawing. And it's also something of a defense of his work. Uh, It has a little bit of a didactic angle where he's trying to teach readers how to approach and appreciate this new medium.
0: Essays d'Autographie is widely considered to be one of the first, if not the first, analytical studies of the comics form. So not only was he basically the person who developed this form, he was also the first person that wrote criticism and analysis about that form as a medium, which is pretty incredible. In it, he discussed not only how stories can be told in the visual medium, but he also talks about Possible future technologies and advancements that might shift the end result such as the addition of color. And not
1: surprisingly, since we've already told you that he was, had figured out this way to do these really rough, quick-a-doodle sketches, uh, Topfer makes clear his opinion that you do not need to be a great artist to make what he called literature in prints, but you have to be able to, quote, invent some kind of drama. And he also takes that opportunity to address critics who would demean the simplicity of the art in this style, for not seeing its value. And he wrote, quote, If only the one or two critics who attack the failings of these little books or who tease their stylistic follies would instead emphasize a useful way of thinking, it is not true that they would well have reached readers who would not go searching for their sermons as well as those who are rarely found in novels.
0: What was that noise? A monster came. (laughs) This argument reminds me of a conversation that, uh, that we actually had earlier today about, um, real historians and, and how a lot of the history podcasts that are really popular are not by real historians, meaning like people that have a PhD and a tenure track position. Um, and, uh, and we, a lot of times my response is, well, the, maybe if you are a, like, academic historian, look at what's being successful about these podcasts and apply that to your academic podcast.
1: Yeah. See how that works. Which is narrative, usually, which is what like story. To. basically like, what he's saying right there. Maybe don't fuss over the technique of my art, but yeah. actually take a moment to appreciate the story I'm telling. Do something useful with your time. <laughs> he he didn't really of, say that to he them. He didn't but say that. He was more
0: like, look, it's really cool. <laughs> Uh, additionally, the autography that was used in Topfer's work is something that he describes, uh, in these, these works. This method let the artist draw onto paper with a special lithographic ink, which would then be used to print the image onto a stone. Then that stone would be used to reprint the original. And one of the benefits of this technique was that the artist didn't have to, like, do everything backwards onto the stone to get it to print correctly. They could just, put their idea on paper as normal, and then go from there. So there's a series of plates in Essay's lithographies showing examples of landscapes and comic sketches to show how these methods could be used for a variety of different images. So it had sort of a technical how-to aspect.
1: Yeah, and so just to go into a little bit more detail on how stone lithography works, so you kind of grasp this, because it took me a little while to really get the mental picture of what he was talking about. Um, the stone in lithography is either a slab of actual stone, normally limestone, or the more modern version has a metal plate. And so this special ink that was used uh, is oily or greasy, like it has a, a stickiness to it. And so when the ink goes onto the stone, it adheres really, really well because of those oils. And then this forms the print image, which can actually be used over and over because the stone gets a water treatment. So the parts of it without this oily print on it absorb all that water. Uh, Because they don't have the ink on it And then another ink is rolled onto the stone And this does not stick to the wet part of the stone But it does stick to those parts that have been treated with the greasy ink So then that can have paper applied to it And the stone is pressed And the image is transferred to the paper like magic I, being a crafty person, the second I read this I was like, I gotta do this (laughs) I haven't done it yet, but it's gonna happen Just rest assured
0: so one of the downfalls of this method was that sometimes the transfer wouldn't be quite perfect, and pieces of a line might drop off of an image, there might be a little gap in there. So for Topper, this actually uh, fueled his passion to draw in such a way that the everything would be really simple. So his in his serialized narratives, uh, if a line was broken, the concept should still remain and be really obvious. And here's something he wrote about it. The graphic line, by the very reason of what uh, meanings it makes clear, even without the imitation being complete, admittedly demands enormous omissions of properties and details, with the result that, whereas in a finished painting, the slightest discontinuity in the image simultaneously marks an eyesore and a gap, in the graphic line, by contrast... Monstrous discontinuities are neither stains nor gaps, even when they are not, as often happens, desired by the author, and merely the happy use of a brevity method. I like monstrous discontinuities.
1: (laughs) That's uh, my new punk band. Um... 1845 was a really busy year for Adolf Topfer. In addition to Essays de Physiognomonie, he also published the comic Histoire d'Albert. And the plot of this comic is about a young man with no life experience and no marketable skills who searches in vain for a career. So think back to the fact that not long before this, he had a... Uh, Conservative political paper that failed Because how this plays out Is that when this young man Shows himself to have no talent And be suited for nothing else He becomes a radical
0: leftist political journalist (laughs) This is my somewhat autobiographical comment (laughs) Histoire de Monsieur Cryptogam Also went into print in 1845 A later unauthorized English language reprint translated the title to The Veritable History of Mr. Bachelor Butterfly. (laughs) This story is about an entomologist who specializes in butterflies on a quest to escape his jealous and zealous fiancé and to find a better match for himself. Uh, there are a lot of really fun movement panels in this particular story, including a segment where a progressively wider assortment of people and animals are drawn into a circular chase on a boat that all began with Monsieur Cryptogram. There's not an R in there. Monsieur Cryptogram running from the very possessive fiancé, and it culminates in this sort of cyclone of movement around on a ship's deck. Yeah, it's quite fun uh, if you're into that sort of cyclonic
1: thing. Uh, there's an interesting piece of historical context here because this comic involves a boat trip, as we just mentioned, to Algiers or Algeria. And this was originally written in 1830, which is an interesting time because France invaded and conquered that country in 1830. Uh, but Topfer doesn't make any mention at all of any of the political stuff. They're just going to visit. Uh, it's almost as though he included it to be current and topical, but he didn't want to really get especially political in this particular instance.
0: Monsieur cryptogam was first printed in a series of 11 installments in the periodical illustration I feel like I said that in terrible. My French is terrible. It's literally the only language I've studied besides English, and I say it so badly. Uh, so that was in 11 installments from January to April of 1845. Topfer's illustration style needed to be refined for this pretty much comic strip style printing in a wide circulation periodical so his original art was recreated with a style that was more in line with uh, magazine illustrations using woodblock. And of course he still had this eye problem so he couldn't
1: do it. Uh, The French lithographer and caricature artist Charles Amédée de Noé who worked under the pseudonym Sham was the person who created those new woodblocks with Topfer supervising and instructing the work and as an side, one of the things he told him to do was go look at all of William Hogarth's work.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The Cryptogam comic was really popular, so much so that L'Illustration soon ran another comic strip-style story by another artist. So basically, a new type of feature in a print publication had been born from Topper's work. Yeah, this is
1: one of those things that when I was reading it, uh, because we work in a company that has done internet content for a long time, it reminded me of those times when, like, a thing works and you just want to do it over and over to get... You know, the successful engagement. So it's like quizzes are great. Let's make a million. Um, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Everybody loves that comic. Who else draws a comic? Uh, and they put it right in that
0: magazine. I feel like we're also with this, we're on the way to having funny papers. Yes.
1: Uh, and so when Cryptogom's story was printed officially this time as the strange adventures of Bachelor Butterfly in New York in 1846, it ...consequently became the second sequential art comic printed in the United States.
0: Le Docteur Festus was created in 1831, but not published until 1846, so 15 years later. The narrative for this one is that the titular doctor wants to go see the world, and he sets out on a series of travels that leave nothing but chaos in his wake but he is completely oblivious to all the chaos he is causing almost
1: all the time. And this one, uh, like others we've mentioned, definitely has some humor, and you got to use the air quotes, uh, that does not come off as funny at all to a modern audience. For example, after Festus creates an uproar at a mill that results in a great deal of confusion, there are three panels in sequence in which the first one is a miller beating his wife, uh She, in the next panel, beats their son. And then in the third panel, the son beats their donkey. Because they, there's this whole case of misplaced blame. They're all blaming each other because he has left this mess in his wake. Um So it's like, uh, there's part of me that tries to imagine the people in 1846 going, that's hilarious. But I'm like, you're monsters. Yeah. <laughs>
0: well, and um- reading that part of the outline reminded me of when I was a kid and my mom and I went to the all the local community theater productions of every musical they ever did and one year they did South Pacific and there is a joke in South Pacific that is literally about assaulting someone and I was I remember sitting there surrounded by grown-ups because I was 14 or something who were all finding this hilarious and I was just like, wait. This is not a funny joke. I don't understand. Yeah, there's dark humor and there's people beating each
1: other. I don't uh, so funny.
0: So even as he was writing Essays de physiognomie and arranging for the publication of several of his sketch stories in the mid-1840s, Tuffer was not doing well in terms of his health. He had started having health problems as early as 1843. He had an enlarged spleen, although it's not really clear exactly what had caused that uh, and he had traveled
1: in the years 1843 to 1845 to the springs at both Leve, Switzerland and Vichy, France, for treatment of this problem. But unfortunately, he did not find any relief in the so-called water cure. His condition only got worse, and it made the pain much worse. Um, when he died on June 8th of 1846, Topfer was still working. And he had several projects in process at the time, and he was allegedly observing the doctors at the baths that he would go to at the encouragement of a cousin to see if he could find some humorous story in it. But his failing health really left him too weak to do a whole lot creative that was new. And he was only 47 when he died, so there was really a lot more he could have created.
0: That last part is both charming and sad to me. Like the idea that he was watching doctors going, is there a funny story here? Yeah. It was touching. So, Topfer became incredibly famous in his own lifetime for his graphic stories, but he was not universally praised for them. A critical essay written by German novelist Friedrich Theodor Wischer begins, quote, What sort of scrawl is this? Is this what Goethe praised? I can hardly believe my eyes. Is this how our childish, our own childish scribbles looked when we turned boyish fantasies into silly caricatures? But in truth, Vischer actually thought that Topfer was doing something really interesting.
1: Those opening lines in that essay were an effort to mimic the criticisms that had already been lobbed at Topfer's work. And Vischer actually found the seeming simplicity of this art and stories to be pretty complex when you actually looked at it more thoughtfully. And his essay continues, quote, But on closer inspection, these capricious, lawless networks of lines coalesce into the most decided characterization. This quite craven, slovenly drawing becomes a well-considered and systematic instrument in the hand of a man who makes sense of nonsense, is wise in delirium, and steers his mad steel To its certain destination, following the rules of a secret calculation. You think it leaps forward on its own, but no, there is a coachman on the box seat. You just can't see him.
0: So it's interesting to look at how people have considered Topfer and his work over the years. One word that comes up a lot when describing his work and his worldview is naivete. Topfer biographer David Kunzel addressed and dissected this whole idea in a two- 2007 book about the artist. So in it, Kunzel
1: makes the case that simply by virtue of not featuring themes of overt sexuality in his work, which was very common in French writing and art at the time, and this prevailing characterization in the 19th century of Switzerland's people being inherently sort of innocent, uh, Topfer's own sharp wit and morality stories have sometimes been characterized into this naive, image
0: Considering that Hogarth, who was known for these morality narratives, is the one influence that Topper claimed, it's pretty logical to conclude that the lack of adult themes in his work was a lot more about his moral compass and his desire to appeal to a broad audience and not an indicator that he just had a wide-eyed innocence about the world. It's also worth noting that even from the beginning, he was sharing his work with his students, so all along he was showing this to children as well as adults. Yes, yeah, so that might explain why he wasn't going for the super adult themes.
1: Uh, and after his death in 1846, almost immediately Topfer's works
0: were published in an anthology titled Histoires en Estampes. One of the things that he was working on before he died was a story called Brutus Calico. And this unfinished manuscript for the story is part of the university library uh, in Geneva's permanent collection. And today there is actually a monument to Rudolf Topfer with
1: a bust of the artist atop a marble pillar that sits in Geneva.
0: Art Spiegelman, who created the graphic novel Mouse, which is incredible, said this of Topper in an interview where he was talking about Topfer's writings and about this new genre that he had created. And this is his quote. He had a deep understanding of what comics were. He understood that comics existed someplace between writing and drawing and was its own language.
1: So as you wander through Comic-Con, if you're one of the people that came for that, look at all that sequential art and think about Rodolphe Topfer. And that's what we got on him. Yeah. So that was our show. We definitely want to take a moment and thank uh, everyone at New York Comic-Con Presents, particularly Matt Wazowski, Colette Oliver and Andrew Esposito who took amazing care of us. We were, as always, so honored to be part of their programming and it was a super fun night.
0: And thank you also everybody who came out to see us. We know the show was a little later in the evening. It's, we ended basically at my bedtime. Uh, and, and traffic was terrible that night. So thanks so much to everybody came out who came out. Uh, And a lot of folks stayed behind afterwards to say hello to us. So thank you, thank you, thank you, all our gracious and wonderful listeners who were there that night.
1: Yeah, you made it just an incredible evening. And I feel like we should give a special thank you to our younger listener, Nathaniel, who brought us amazing gifts and was charming and delightful.
0: Yes, thank you so much, Nathaniel.
1: Yeah, Uh, I have a little bit of listener mail. I'm going to keep it short. I'm not going to read her whole her whole letter because our episode is a little lengthy. Um, It is uh from our listener, Kim, who writes, Hello and well wishes from Washington, D.C. I love the show and discovered the archive episodes this past summer. They were a great way to learn a little something while I delved into my new hobby of embroidery. You two make an excellent theme in the way you approach subjects, and the integrity of your research is such a credit to you both and the respect you hold for history. She goes on. She's lovely. And she mentions that... um one of the things she sent us in this parcel was a little batch of vintage postcards, particularly those with uh, dresses of a few of the first ladies. Oh yeah. It's such a good little parcel. It's like a um it's like one of those things that I'm gonna keep on my desk and when I'm having a cruddy day I'm gonna pull one out at a time. So it's like a slow unpack for me where I go, Oh a delight. Oh, um and then, because Kim is a very organized woman, um, she sent us a huge list of episode suggestions. But she categorized them, which is amazing, by people, events, general histories, and miscellaneous. And it's lovely and far more organized than I would ever be so I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it Kim thank you for all of the beautiful postcards like I said they are going to uh, brighten my days when I'm having a rough one or just want a little smile for no good reason Uh and again thank you thank you thank you to New York Comic Con Presents and everyone who came to the live show if you would like to write us you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com you can also find us at mistinhistory.com, which is our website and from there it's your launching point to all of our social media but just in case you want to go direct, we're Missed in History pretty much everywhere you go. If you would like to check out past episodes, you can do that at our website. As we said, that's MissedInHistory.com. We have a full archive of every episode that has ever existed of the show long before Tracy and I were ever involved. And we have uh, our current episodes and any that Tracy and I have worked on have show notes. So come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and we'll all explore history together.